Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder that is joining us. We're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, you know, when it comes to building and scaling companies. We're going to be talking about what it really means, you know, or what it looks like to be successful as an entrepreneur. We're also going to be talking about what AI looks in the real world. Also, what the next five years are going to look like for this company, you know, that is a, literally a rocket ship. And then also how and why the way that the company started really impacted, ended up impacting their culture. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Angie Ma. Welcome to the show. Hi, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Beijing, in China, you know, I know that you moved uh, quite early to Hong Kong and then London, but give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up for you? It was interesting, as I said. I I I was uh, I was born in Beijing, so this was in the early eighties, and so things were very different. Um, uh, I don't. There were very few cars even in Beijing, um, and then when I was about five, we moved to Hong Kong, and which, like, uh, it was a very busy city, so it was quite a big change for me. Um, plus language change, and then I. Uh, came to the UK. I actually came to a boarding school when I was 14. Um, so that was, again, quite a big change, uh, going into a new environment. Uh, I couldn't speak English very well at the time and so and living away from home. So that was, uh, yeah, that was basically steps of um, being, uh, going into very new, unfamiliar environment. Well, I mean, and also so young, no? I mean, at five, probably you didn't remember much, but at 14, you know, and you remember, and you, you, you take notice of absolutely everything, new friends, new place, new culture, new everything. How was that, how was that for you? I thought that was great. I loved it because um, my school um, was uh, in the countryside. And uh, so if you... If you can imagine Harry Potter, it's a bit like that, where kids sort of gather together. You have a lot of fun. You play sports every day, um, and you know you you up to mischiefs. Um, it, you know, at a the time there were still detentions. I was in detentions a lot. Uh, you get to keep pets, where you have to. Part of your detention might be cleaning up the pet room. So it was great fun, and I think one thing that I've really learned is how. Being in very different environment, completely different culture, people who have very different views um, and background with you, that it really challenged my own way of seeing the world. And I thought that was incredibly valuable. So out of all things, what would you say got you into physics? Actually, that was a bit of a chance journey because I originally wanted to study electronic and electrical engineering um uh, my my family um was very encouraging me sort of going into engineering because my my father um is an engineer um but then i went to a, a summer school doing physics um and i really loved it i loved the fact that how it it helps you understand the world 
in a, in a, a very concrete and useful way. Um, it helps explain some of the, I guess, uh, beauty of like natural phenomena. And to me, that was fascinating. And here in the UK, to get into university, so uh, you have to have certain grades. So for the subject, which was um, electrical engineering, I needed, I think, three uh, A's and uh, three A stars, in fact, I remember. And I only got two A stars. I needed, I got one just A. And so um, at the end, that meant I couldn't get into the, the degree that electrical engineering I wanted to do. I applied for, um, and I thought, oh, wait, but I really like physics. I could get into physics. So then I decided to switch then that, you know what, I could I could do physics. It's, it's, it's equally good, if not better. And I was actually really pleased I made that decision. So I know that also once you graduated, you tried early on startups in the early 2000s. But unfortunately, things did not pan out the way that you had hoped for. What happened there? What were the sequence of events that unfolded and what was the biggest lesson that you took away from, from that? Yeah, so this is the early 2000. Um, I think just it was past the dot-com boom, obviously. Um, and uh, But at the time, the, the e-commerce space, um, online shopping was still very clunky if you, if you go on sort of online shopping things were very slow and part of the challenge was um was the databases structure weren't um very optimized so a couple of friends and i were just very interested and we thought actually maybe we can do something we can optimize databases and so we started like uh what well, building a business um we had a few customers where we helped them sort of optimizing databases um but you know what as as a lot of early 20s you just haven't got a clue how the world works how to work with each other you you have you know we had no work experience so you know mainly i think it was a great idea it could have worked really well but we just you know we were too naive we didn't know how to do teamwork so people fell out in fact so um so from pretty much the very early days I realized that you know you could have a good idea but if you haven't got the team to execute that's still like useless so um so it felt pretty spectacular very quickly um and that was a very good lesson I mean talking about lesson there too I mean you after this went into this period into this phase of rediscovering yourself you know where you did a couple of transitions you know you went then into becoming a lawyer. Then from there, you went into academia. And then things, you know, came the full circle. And now you went into startups again. So what needed to happen for you to be okay with taking another step at being an entrepreneur once again and entering startups? I think it's definitely a, a journey of uh, self-discovery um, because after the uh, first fails, startup um you know you get a little bit disillusioned disencouraged and i was at a crossroad um kind of conflicted between family expectations and my desire so coming from a traditional chinese family i was encouraged to pursue a more um conventional vocation like law or accounting um because i was into philosophy so i decided to give law a try um 
although I really enjoy studying law, um, I quickly realized that I would be a lousy lawyer. Um, my heart just wasn't in it. So I returned to physics um, because by then I was you know, I was, I knew myself much better. I um, recognized that I was driven by the kind of curiosity to understand how the world works. Um, so then I, I went back to physics. Um, but a year into uh, my PhD um, doing physics, I realized that, gosh, I was studying the wrong subject because um, I became part of this community um, that's like looking at AI, particularly AI safety. So this was about 16, 17 years ago and where I was introduced to AI and it blew me away, the technology. And I realized that's the transformative technology of our time. Um, and that's so the seed. I realized this is the direction I needed to go. Um, and by 2013, I concluded that academia, um, academic research was not for me. Um, although it was intellectually very, very stimulating, um, I wanted to do something more impactful and didn't require a long time to see the results. Um, so, uh, so then when the opportunity came, my co-founder came to me with the idea to start faculty. Um, which was early 2014, I basically seized it, the seized the opportunity without hesitation. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's double click on that. Let's talk about that moment where, obviously, you know, like first and foremost, how you met your co-founder and then how did that conversation happen where you were, you knew that this was the next chapter for you and you knew that you were ready. And I guess also since you had the, 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 the experience in the past that didn't fold the way that you had hoped for, what made you believe that this was meaningful enough to for you to take action, whether you were to succeed or fail? Yeah, it's a good um, good question. So the idea how we started was very much out of our own needs. So at the time, we were both looking to leave academia. And it was quite difficult for people from a physics background at the time to leave. Um, we, by then, we were like in our early 30s, haven't had any work experience, pretty unemployable. And uh, um, and so there, my co-founder was in the US at the time. He was actually at Harvard um, doing a research fellowship. And he came across a, um, a, a kind of boot camp to, that helps um, academics transition to um, to industry, and we were inspired. And there wasn't anything like that in the UK. Um, and so we decided that actually, you know, we would like to create a program here in the UK uh, so that we could attend the program. Um, at the end, we never attended the program, but it kicked off the company. Um, so that's how the company we started. We started this um, eight week fellowship program that helped um, STEM. PhD graduates and academics going into doing um, commercial data science. And the program has now been running for 10 years now. And we have more than 500 alumni that's doing really well. Um, and it also then allows the company then evolve with our own product and services. Um, and yeah, so that's how we took off. For the people that are listening to really get it, 
what ended up being the business model of faculty? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So at the time, the beginning was very much, a, a you could say, an innovative education program to start with. And so because these people, um, they would work for like six weeks with companies um, on their projects um, and whilst we provide training to them and so that they could demonstrate that they were able to develop, deliver value to the companies and then companies at the end could hire them. Um, so it's a, a very innovative hiring program and um, and then it's, it's, um, it's a fixed fee that we got from uh, companies and it's free for the fellows so we could go out and find the best people. Um, and yeah, that was the initial um, business model. And that's that was that actually worked quite well because um, for the past 10 years, there were lots of talent shortage um, for organizations. And a program like this allowed them to sort of try before you buy type of thing um, to really sort of see if it's a good fit for both the, the the fellow and the company um, before they commit to a more long-term employment. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And I know that uh, when you guys got started back in 2014, I mean, it was a... Uh, Obviously, the the startup environment in especially in Europe, you know, has developed quite a bit. But uh, back then, you know, it was kind of like shaping up still, uh, and it's still not at the same speed as as what you would typically see in the U.S. So, how was it, you know, also for you all to be able to get into the whole venture capital hyper growth thing of, uh, of 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 doing the fundraising as well? How has that experience been for you all? It has been actually quite good for us um, in a sense that um, because uh, because of our business model to start with, um, before even we had our own product and um, services, we could generate revenue from the um, this fellowship program. 
So when we decided to do fundraising, it was primarily for our product, which we started, our first product, which we started to build in 2016. And it was good because we had revenue. It wasn't just burning money, as they say. And so um, so we were able to be uh, selective about our investors. Um, so the investors, investors we brought on even from early days were people we really like respect and ha- really have very well aligned vision um, to what we want to set out to do. Um, so it was quite good. And then um, we then the first kind of institutional um, seed investor we had was Local Globe, um, which I think is probably the most prestigious seed fund um, now in in Europe. Um, and they, they've been incredibly helpful throughout. Um, and then subsequently in 2021, we had our second institutional investor, which was Apex Digital. Um, and I think Having revenue from the start meant that, you know, as they say, the best time to, you know, repair the roof is when the sun is shining. So we could do fundraising when we don't um, desperately need the money. So, yeah, no kidding. And I know that uh, up until now, you guys have roughly raised about $60 million. Uh, now, one thing that comes to mind here is uh, when it comes to, to, to investors, to vision, is a really big one. And and when you think about vision, it's not only about onboarding investors, but then also the way that you're able to get employees to get super excited about the future that you're living into, also about the customers that you're serving. So as we're thinking about vision here, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Angie, and, and you wake up in a world where the vision of faculty is fully realized, what does that world look like? Hmm. Wow, that's a great question, actually. But this will be one for a lot of uh, founders to get right. I think um, so. Obviously, in the AI space, so we are now we've got ten years of experience in AI, and we've got what uh, over three hundred and fifty people now, and um, have delivered so many. Um, kind of AI system close to 500 and and like operationalizing AI for organization. What we see um, is that now AI, especially in the past year or so, is has become the number one conversation in boardrooms. Um, and previously, it's it's been more of a niche topic uh, championed by the CTOs or the CIOs, but now it's in the mind, it's like number one thing for every senior leader. In fact, I think three out of four uh, execs would say that if um, if they if they don't scale AI in the next five years, they might go bust. A bit like kind of the digital the past twenty years, the digital transformation. Um, and so, company needs to make the right choices. What we see is that um, at the moment, um, the Leaders are not quite sure what exactly they need to do uh, with AI um, and fully understand what it needs to look like. And so they they tend to sort of uh, rush into implementing a lot of AI tools um, and that sort of risks getting caught in the in the hype cycle um, and and end up, you know, seeking kind of short-term gains over the more strategic, transformative investment. So, and so I would like 
like ideally really help organizations to make those strategic and transformative um, investment in AI so that they really get the ROI instead of lots of tools and, you know, not quite get a lot of value out of AI. And um, so so then I think the summary is is really to um, to help organizations to harness the benefit of the technology whilst mitigating the risks. Um, because there are risks associated with it and help organizations to make um, good choices to um, to elevate, to enhance their businesses um, with AI. Obviously, now AI is everywhere. Everyone is talking about AI. Everyone is saying that they're doing something AI-related. What does AI look in the real world? Yes, I mean, the, the, the past year or two, you hear so much about generative AI, like the chat GPT, and, um, and that's been great. It's really uh, capture kind of everyone's um, imagination and, and like show like some potential. Um, but what actually um, the most impactful um, AI applications that we see are probably less sexy but it's like nonetheless extremely, extremely impactful. So I'll give a quick kind of, um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate it with a quick case study. So we've been working with um, with Weldar, which is um, a, a Welsh um, hospital trust. So um, the NHS uh, Wells, um, so they, they will have a number of hospitals. So um, uh, the UK is run by uh, the National Health Service. Um, and one of the challenge um, of these hospitals is that you will have patients who are medically fit, um, but can't be discharged for some reason. They're still stuck in the hospital. And in Wales, about a third of the beds are occupied by patients who don't need to be in the hospital. So can you imagine like one third of your resources are being kind of used unnecessarily instead of directed at patients who actually really need it? Um, so working closely with frontline medical staff, we're able to deploy AI to help predict um, each patient's estimated date of this discharge so that the, the frontline medical staff can start planning a patient's um, discharge because you can't just ask people to go home. You have to plan, for example, like coordinate with their family or non-hospital services like social care, et cetera. So you need to get those like um, arranged beforehand before you can discharge. And with this kind of um, AI application, like, Certainly with Heldar's, um hospitals, they see a 35% reduction in bed filled with those who don't need to be in the hospital. So, And so that means they can divert their resources to other patients who are on the waiting list to do operations or other things. And that amounts to a saving of like 40 million. And that's just for a couple, a small like two, three numbers of hospitals. And National Health Service in the UK spend about 120 billion pounds per year. So if you just like increase the the uh, a little bit the efficiency, just a, even a tiny percentage, you make a huge amount of difference in in um, in, in healthcare quality um, in the UK certainly. So so I guess the uh, the in this regard to imagine 
if I was to put you into a time machine, you know, because we've been talking about the future too, and I know if the AI is the future, but I want to talk about the past and doing such with a with a lens of reflection, because now you know you had the opportunity of being at this, you know, for a decade. Uh, you also had the previous startup experience too. But let's say you know I was to put you in a time machine, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment that you were graduating from Imperial, you know, there in, in London. And you're able to stop that younger self. Maybe it's that day of the graduation, you know, where you're throwing your gown up in the air, you know, and, and, and celebrating. And now you're thinking about the future. And you're thinking about a future where you would uh, be able to bring a solution to a problem that you're experiencing. And let's say you're able to see that younger Angie. And you're able to give that younger Angie one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, certainly, um, before, well, doing startup, I have to say, for me personally, it's been the hardest thing. Um, it's really tough. So uh, the first advice I would tell is think before you actually do it, because it's, it's actually really tough. And uh, the odds of success is actually not very high if you look at startups and uh, starting companies. Um, but it, it's been, I will also tell myself, it, it's something extremely rewarding. Um, um, you learn so much, you grow so much as a person. Um, but what I think is the most important thing is, um, is how I could really sort of work hard and cultivate a, um, an as undistorted and nuanced model of the world as possible. Um, the reason why is because our comprehension of the world is just inherently flawed. So we have lots of biases and just how we understand the world. And so, especially if you're doing, um, like a startup or working in a nascent technology field, like AI, you're doing something that very few people have done before. So you want to make almost like better decisions at every like step. So you need to have like, uh, I would call like a less wrong model of the world, just, you know, understand the world. And so you have a better chance of making the right decision and hence have a more favorable outcomes. Um, I think that's probably one thing that requires um, like cultivating different skills, um, like critical thinking, how to synthesize information, how to um, communicate with people, how to understand the world. Um, I think that that would be one thing I, I think will be incredibly valuable. Um, so that's super profound. For the, for, for the people that are, that are listening that they are super inspired and that would love to reach out and say, hi, Angie, what is the best way for them to do so? You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do check my LinkedIn uh, reasonably regularly. And uh, my email is just angie at faculty.ai. So people can easily reach out to me. Um, and I'll try to, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty good at uh, responding to email. So, yeah. You see enough. Well, Angie, it has been an absolute honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time for being on the Dealmaker Dealmakers podcast today. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. 
if you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.